It is good to have every one of you with us today. And uh, right now we have several that are joining us over in our Modern Hymn service, as well as many who are online with us. So if you are in the room with me right now, would you welcome in our online community? Yeah, glad to have you with us, especially if this is your first time. We're glad that you're joining us here at First Church. Hey, uh, this week, our students went to Youthquake and uh, had an incredible time. It was, uh, it, it, and, and I'm not just talking about the weather, uh, it was awesome. Uh, yes, and the weather was great. We woke up and it was like mid-50s in the morning, you know, uh, upper 70s, low 80s. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And then we had to come back to hell. Uh, you know, it's like, ah. Oh. Jeez, <laughs> Oklahoma, why do we live here? Anyway, but, uh, but no, uh, Youthquake was awesome. We got to see God do some incredible things. We, uh, Steph and I didn't get to say all week, but uh, first half of the week, and, and it was pretty awesome. Next week, we're gonna be celebrating what God did at Youthquake, but all, not just that, we're gonna be celebrating what God's been doing in the lives of our kids and students all summer, and so you're not gonna wanna miss out next week, so be here, be a part of our services that day as we're gonna have students on stage, and it's just, it's going to be a fun day, and uh, so be here as we get to celebrate a lot of the things that, uh, that God has done this summer, okay? Um, today, though, we are finishing up our mixtape series. Hopefully, you have been a part of this uh, over the last several weeks, and uh, if you've missed any of them, any of our guest speakers, any of them that have came in, Brian Champ last week knocked it out of the park because he's a champ. Anyway, um, but if you missed any of them, be sure to go check them out because uh, uh, we've had some great messages over the last uh, several weeks and hopefully <sighs> I won't fail today. So here we go. <laughs> Yeah, uh, last year we uh, put in some security cameras around our church, uh, around our building, just uh, not because we were having major issues or anything, but just more preemptive. And uh, you know what? When we put those in, we had no idea how much fun we would have with security cameras. Yeah, um, some of you we've caught uh, doing things. But anyway, not like bad, like mishaps. Anyway, uh, but our staff, I mean, we just, we have fun. If somebody falls, has an accident or something, our first question is, where? <laughs> you know, I was like, which camera? You know, we go find it. One of those happened uh, at the end of last year, and it was, uh, it was Jono Ori. Yes, our video tech. And, uh, and so he was walking across stage right through here, carrying his drink. And I just, I, I just wanted to share this with you real quick. Um, boom. Oh, yes. As we, see his eyes go over. Now, if you didn't see it all in, in real time and see him fall, um, yeah, he's, he was hurting. I, I went ahead and took it all the way to where he bows. There he goes. Okay. Now, here's slow motion. Boom, 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 boom. Wham. Oh, uh, yeah, one more time just for the fun of it. He said he didn't hit his head. I, I, it looks like you hit your head. But anyway, I, I had to show that one. Number one, because uh, it was fun. Uh, number two, today's Jono's birthday. So yay, Jono. Uh, uh, Jono. Jono does all of our videos and oversees all of our camera stuff and all that. He does a lot around here. But our staff, again, we, we like to have fun with those. Um, we've, we've got a number of uh, different we have different footage of staff. Anyway, I know they hate it. Uh, they would love for us to erase that footage, get away, you know, and we would all be that way, right? We don't want people to look at our failures, our mishaps, our, our mistakes, and then show it to the world. You're welcome, Jono. Anyway, um, we would rather it be erased, right? One thing about mixtapes, uh, maybe you remember this if you are from that era, our era, um, 
You, you could tape over, you, you could erase, even if you had busted out the tabs, right? You could put some tape over the holes and, and then you could still put the cassette in and you could record over whatever you had previously had there. Maybe there were some new songs out and you know, and those old songs I don't listen to very much anymore or, or whatever, and, or you wanted them in a different order. And, and so, yeah, it was hard work. I mean, it's not like just playlists kind of stuff. Uh, couldn't just hit shuffle, right? You had to make it in the order you want. Anyway, you could go back and you could record over. But if you didn't do it right or if you didn't have that good of a recorder, there were times that you could still hear the previously recorded song, right? Some of you are taking here, yeah, it would bleed through. Sometimes you could hear it through the new song, but especially if it was there, if there's a gap in between the songs there, you know, you didn't hit record and play at the right time, and so you got a little bigger gap, and then you can hear a little bit of music playing because it didn't get fully erased. It still bleeds through. We live in a world, a culture, that keeps trying to erase God. Keeps trying to push him out. But no matter how hard the world tries to erase God, he's still there. <laughs> he still bleeds through. The rhythms of his nature are all around us. Our students this week, I always love to ask our students when we go to Youthquake, who of you are seeing the mountains for the first time? You know, Because they're, they're the ones with their eyes wide open because they're seeing God's creation in the mountains like they've never seen it before. And it's like, wow, you just can't deny it. Well, some people do, <laughs> but he's still there. His nature is all around us. And though the world tries to erase him, push him out, God is still there. Many throughout the, the years have said, claimed God is dead or God never existed. He's just a, a product of our imagination, but he's still there. David over in Psalm 14, he, he said this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because just look around and we see him everywhere. God continues to make himself known in this world even though we try to push him out and erase him. Now today we're gonna be over in Psalm chapter two, not 14. Psalm chapter two, if you, if you have your Bibles, get there. If you have the app, have that ready to go. We're gonna be walking through Psalm chapter two and, and a couple things to know about Psalm chapter two. Number one, it's a messianic psalm, meaning that it's pointing to the coming Messiah. We know who that is, right? Jesus, all right, it's Sunday school answer, you got it, all right, Jesus is that Messiah. We also know it was written by David, we'll find that out here in just a minute where we, we learn that. It is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. Interesting. That so often the New Testament writers would run to Psalm 2 to, to express what they were going through and what they were Dealing, dealing with. Most would agree that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together, that David wrote them both, and, and uh, as you look at the theme and you look at how it is written, that they both belong together. And so last year in this series, I preached Psalm 1. This year, I thought, well, let's just conclude that sermon from last year with Psalm 2, right? So it's the longest sermon in the world. Well, it took me a year to get there. But anyway, so let's dive in, let's walk through Psalm chapter two. Some of this is gonna sound familiar again because you've heard it and you don't realize it. Number, uh, verse one, why do the nations conspire? Some versions, instead of conspire, they say, why do the nations rage? Any Rich Mullins fans out there? 
Ah, there's a few of you. All right, ah, I can see the hand. All right. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So David begins this psalm and he begins with this question, why? Why do the nations rage against God? Why do the nations continually try to to push God out, try to erase God? David seems genuinely perplexed at the world's attempt to push God out. Now, he lists a lot of the characters in the world here that, that he's talking about. He, he talks about the nations, and, and literally he's talking about the Gentile nations, those outside of Israel. And then he talks about the peoples. Those are people inside the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Even they, some of them, rage against God. The kings of the earth, that is those rulers, those people who are influencers in the world. He says they too are a part of this. And he says they gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. They they join forces to go against God and his anointed one. Who's the anointed one that he is speaking of? Well, uh, we've got to remember as David is writing this, most likely he is referring to some of the circumstances that he finds himself in, right? He is God's anointed king over God's people, Israel, and there's no doubt that he had uh, surrounding nations that were wanting to war against him, rage against him and his nation, and so there was very real circumstances that David was dealing with as he wrote this and penned this. But at the same time, While David is writing this, the Holy Spirit is working and he's looking ahead at the Messiah of what's to come. And so we know not only is David the anointed son, but one day the Messiah would come. Jesus would be that anointed son that the world would rage against. Now, we see the ultimate fulfillment of the scripture laid out for us over in Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four is where uh, Peter and John, they heal the lame man, and then the religious leaders, they don't really like it that they did this because they did it in the name of Jesus, the one they just killed a few weeks earlier, and and then Peter and John are saying, no, he's alive, Uh, you know, and we just healed this guy in the name of Jesus, and so the religious leaders are like, whoa, 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 no, we can't have that happen, and we've already squashed that group, we've killed that group, right, right? right? (laughs) Nope. And so they go get Peter and John and they put them in jail overnight. And then the next day they, they question them. Okay. By what power, what authority, how are you doing this? And they say, it's Jesus. We told you that we've been preaching that. And so finally the leaders tell them, stop preaching and teaching Jesus. And they release them. Peter and John go directly to their friends. They go back to the church. They go back to their people and they tell them everything that happened and what God has done. And the people, the church, Peter and John, they begin to pray together and they begin to pray the words of Psalm 2. And they start by saying this in verse 25 there. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Okay, here's where we learn the authorship of Psalm 2. You spoke through David and here's the words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
So they just quote right there, those first few verses of Psalm chapter two. This is what you said was gonna happen. This is what you wrote through, through David, verse 27. Indeed, now they outline how they have seen this play out right in front of them. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Jewish leader, Gentile leader, all the people come together, sound familiar, to rage against, to conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God, this was your plan. Your sovereign plan has played out and we got to see it and it lines right up with what you said would happen in Psalm chapter two. All of them came together against you, God. but your plan is still at work. <laughs> your anointed one is still alive and we're still here to advance the gospel. So why, why did they, again, David's perplexed. He begins going back to Psalm chapter two. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Why does the world so badly want to push God out? David in that text, verse three, keeps on going and describing what the people say. These that have gathered, the rulers and authorities as they have gathered, they say this as they are trying to rage and plot against God. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And some versions will say cords. Literally, when it's talking about chains and fetters and cords, all those things, he's talking about those uh, devices used to hold prisoners in prison to restrict them, to, to put them into bondage. And so what David is saying that the world is saying that when God steps in, if there is a God, he's only wanting to restrict us from having the life we wanna have. All his rules and all his mandates and all his laws, it's just, he's just a God of bondage. And we don't want that. He's oppressive and he's restrictive and so the world pushes him out. They don't want, the world doesn't want God's word. They don't want an idea of an absolute truth because if it's absolute truth, that means it's right for you and right for me and it's right for everyone, everywhere, every, all the time. And no, no, I want what's right for me to be right for me. You can do what you wanna do. That, that's what the world says. The world doesn't want to have your morality forced upon them or God's morality forced upon them that they find in God's word. They don't want God's law, those 10 commandments and others that, that God gives us in his, in his word that, that we're called to live by. Are we called to live by them for salvation? No, we don't, we, we can't. That's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law for us because we couldn't do it. But we still should strive to live out God's law. Not because we have to, but because we, we want to. As followers of Jesus, so the world pushes God away because the world says we don't want the oppressive rules of God. Fallen humans want independence from their creator. Kind of like a teenager. Some of you have been parents of teenagers. You've been a teenager. <laughs> they reach that point in their teenageness 
where mom and dad become the dumbest people in the world, right? <laughs> and uh, as moms and dads, we've, we work through that with patience and love and grace. And <sighs> anyway, mine are beyond that now. Anyway, that's, that's good. I pray for those of you who are still in it. But anyway, um, and we just pray that one day they'll reach that stage where they do look back and older parents do tell us, don't worry, one day they'll look back and they'll realize you were right. You weren't that dumb. Sometimes we, in our humanness, treat God like that. God, you don't, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand the desires within me. You don't, you don't get it, God. And so this world, and let's be honest, sometimes we in the church, we push God away. We might even rage we might even plot against him. I mean, there's some things that God calls us to in his word that, you know, I know we as believers, we kind of, you know, we, you know, when Paul says, don't let there be any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. I mean, well, I mean, let's define unwholesome. I mean, a little cuss word here and there, surely that's not a bad thing. It's not going to hurt anybody. Don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, Hebrews says meeting with the church, God's people that he's called us to do. And man, it's summertime and the lake and all the things, you know, there's so many things going on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you know my wife? I'm not talking about my wife. I love my wife. She's awesome. <laughs> She's awesome. I'm just rhetorically throwing that out there, all right? She's normally not in first service, I'll say that. Anyway, um, but I wouldn't have said that anyway. Anyway, um, but no, we, let's talk about spouses. You know, we, it's always their fault. It's not, it's not my fault. God, you know, I can't be the spouse you call me to be because of the way they are. Put aside a portion of your income for the Lord. Oh, yeah, he went there. Have you seen gas prices? Man, maybe, maybe 5% is okay instead of 10. Sometimes we want to push God out. We want to plot. We want to plan. We want to do things different than what he's called us to. And, but what's God's response? David keeps on going in the text. Look at verse 4 and following there. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God do in response? Well, he laughs. <laughs> really? You're gonna rage and plot against me? Now, what this doesn't mean is that God gets a kick out of man's rebellion and the hurt and destruction that it causes. I don't think that's what it is at all. But he laughs at the futile attempt of mankind to come against our creator. 
to turn on him, to think that we can gather forces together and we can maybe defeat or go against God. And so God laughs at that. And what it communicates is that God doesn't tremble whenever the world comes against him. When the leaders of the world turn against God, he's not biting his fingernails in anxiety and fear. He's not going to count his angelic armies to make sure that he's got enough firepower to be able to stand against the onslaught of the world that's gonna turn on him. That's not it at all. He laughs. I remember whenever my kids were little, all three of them at times, they would attack dad. You know, we're gonna take dad down. And we would have wrestling matches and I would throw him on the couch and throw him on the bed, you know. And, and sometimes, especially when Jaden, my son, who wanted to take out dad, would come at me with all he had and I would throw him in the air <laughs> and down the bed. And I'd just laugh. It was just, just laugh. It's like, really? I think you can take out dad. Maybe that's a little bit of the picture of what God does when the world turns against him. It's just, come on, come on. It's interesting in the text, he doesn't even stand up from his throne. Some versions say, sitting at his throne, he just laughs against the futile attempts. It doesn't mean that God laughs at the wickedness of the world or the sin of the world or the hurt in this world. Ezekiel 33, 11 speaks of that when it says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil, he says. He wants people to come and follow him. But he laughs. What else does he do? It says there that, it goes on, it says God rebukes them and reminds them of, of what he has done. And what has he done? What it says there in the text, he says, I have installed my king. My king is on the throne. You think you guys are the kings and the rulers of this world. You're the big influencers in this world. But let me remind you, I've installed my king. For David, he was the king. He was the one that was installed. But we know, again, and as a messianic text, he's looking ahead at his Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. I have installed my king, and he is the king of all kings. He reminds us of that. He reminds the world of that. And so David, he... Again, through the Holy Spirit, he paints this picture of his relationship with God and ultimately God's, uh, God the Father's relationship with Jesus, the Son. In verse seven, it says this, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, God said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. David had a tight relationship with God. I mean, he was known as a man after God's own heart. But of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus as well, the Messiah, Jesus' baptism, maybe you remember that story when Jesus is baptized and a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. It was Jesus' transfiguration where a voice from the cloud spoke, said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. He tells Peter, James, and John who are there. Going on in the text, God speaking to his anointed son says this in verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Uh, son, remember those nations that raged against you and plotted against us? Remember those guys? They're gonna be your inheritance. There will be a day and elsewhere in, in the Bible says they will be your footstool. Don't worry, 
about them, son. God goes on, still speaking to the son, verse nine, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. An iron scepter is strong. It's hard. It's no match. Or pottery is no match to this iron rod that he compares him to. He says, the world is just like pottery, and you're strong. They won't be able to stand against you. No one will be able to stand up against your kingdom. And again, this is a present reality for David as he is writing this and talking about his warring armies. He was a warring king, and he went against a lot of nations, and, and they won a lot of victories and a lot of battles. But ultimately, I believe it was pointing to Jesus, and I believe here he begins to point towards the second coming when Jesus comes back in power. Verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. You rulers, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. He says, listen up, kings, listen up, rulers, influencers. It's not too late. Be wise. Don't fall for the wisdom of this world, but be wise. Repent of the way that you're thinking and be transformed in your mind, Romans 12 says. He says, be wise, be warned. It's not too late. You can still turn, you can still change, you can still follow me. Be warned. And so what are we to do? Verse 11, the call is serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It says you've got to change your purpose. If, you're, if you are gonna follow me, if you are gonna listen to my warning, then here's what you're to do. Start by changing the purpose of why you're living and begin serving me. You've been serving yourself. You've set yourself up as your own king, but I'm the king. Serve me, follow me. Rejoice in the Lord with trembling. When we recognize the awesomeness of God, his power. It's like Isaiah when he steps into the throne room of God. If you remember that text, that story, he steps into the throne room of God and he says, woe is me. <laughs> I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his own sinfulness because he comes in contact with the awesomeness of God. And so here he says, rejoice in the Lord with trembling. Recognize how awesome he is. Verse 12 says this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Kiss the son. The idea with kissing the son, it's like approaching a diplomat of some sort and, and kissing their hand. It's a show of humility, it's a show of surrender towards them. He's saying, humble yourself while there is still time because the son has not come back yet. He came before, he came as a baby in a manger with grace and love and salvation, but now he's coming back as a warrior king. Listen to the picture that we get in Revelation 19. Starting in verse 11, it says this, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name, uh, a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. 
white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Sound familiar? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came with mercy and grace and salvation the first time. The second time, he's coming with wrath to judge. Even if he delays his coming any longer, you have no guarantee that you have tomorrow. One preacher put it this way, those that will not bow shall break. There will be a day when Jesus comes again. That's our hope. It's what we hold on to. And so David ends Psalm 2 where he began Psalm 1, interestingly, with a promise. He says this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The only option that we in this world have is surrender. We take refuge in Jesus to find refuge from Jesus. The nations have tried to war together. They've tried to come together. Nero, Diocletian, they've, they tried. They thought they won. They didn't. They're dead. He's still here. China has tried to push God out, but the church in China continues to grow. Islam has tried to eradicate Christians and Christianity, but some Islamic nations are where we find the church growing faster than any other place on the planet. But interestingly, when we see these places that are absolutely hostile to God, at the same time, we see the church in America shrinking. Why? Maybe it's because we've stopped taking or finding our refuge in Jesus and instead we have began here in America to find our refuge in other things. In our possessions, in our 401ks, in our families, our relationships, our political affiliations. We've found comfort in this world and we've traded our refuge with Jesus for the refuge of this world. So my question for us today is this. Where do you find your refuge? Each week we get prayer requests that come in on the uh, connection cards, which we love receiving these. We love to be praying over this. Some of you are on our prayer team, so you get those every week and you see those prayer requests. We get some that are confidential. We don't share with everybody, but we, we get those. We pray over those. And whenever I see those prayer requests and I read through those, so often I read them and I, I recognize the heart behind them. And it's a heart that is saying, I'm in crisis, I'm hurting, we're, we're dealing with something, and we need to find refuge we're turning to God. Please pray with us in this as we are struggling, as we're dealing with whatever it is that's going on in our life. Following Jesus is no guarantee to a, a problem-free life. Matter of fact, it's a recipe for a problem-filled life. Jesus said, in this world, you're gonna have troubles. But no, no matter what we face in this life, 
no matter what we face in this life, what circumstances that come our way, as followers of Jesus, humbly submitted to him, we have hope, we have joy, we hold on to the truth that he's coming back one day for us, and we will be victorious in him. Do you want to live the blessed life? The blessed life is one humbly surrendered to Jesus. I want you to say that with me. The blessed life is one humbly surrendered to Jesus. Kiss the Son. Father in heaven, God, we thank you that though we live in a world that rages against you, and plots against you, and tries to erase you. God, we can hold tight to you, knowing that you hold tight to us. God, help us today to examine our lives, and ask, help us to ask ourselves, be very, help us to be real with ourselves, where do we find our refuge? What would happen, God, if we lost everything we have? Would we be okay? Because we find our refuge in you. God, I pray that, that God, we will be a church, that we'll be a people, your people, that continue to convey this message, your message of love and grace, your message that says there is still time to turn and follow you. God, we thank you that your grace and your salvation is still available, and we pray that many, many more people will turn and follow you. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.